Sefer Vayikra, Parshat Tazria, on examining others' wounds. Parshat Tazria gives the details on how the Israelites were to handle skin abnormalities in a time when the social and health stakes of understanding them were extremely high. God gives Moshe and Aaron the following instructions. When a person has on the skin of the body a swelling, a rash, or a discoloration, and it develops into a scaly affection on the skin of the body, it shall be reported to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons, the priests. The priest shall examine the affection on the skin of the body. If hair in the affected patch has turned white and the affection appears to be deeper than the skin of the body, it is a leprous affection. When the priest sees it, he shall pronounce the person impure, meaning the person does not need to isolate. But if there is a white discoloration on the skin of the body, which does not appear to be deeper than the skin and the hair in it has turned white, the priest shall isolate the affected person for seven days. This can seem like a deeply ancient and outdated issue. But for me, the Parsha remains highly relevant because every human being carries certain ailments, both visible and invisible. And these maladies are in some ways even more difficult to handle than leprosy. While we're all in some sort of pain, we're not all struggling in the same way. Everyone suffers, and everyone suffers differently. So we have the task of not only helping one another, but of figuring out how to help others and understand their pain in ways that might be difficult for us to grasp. As the Russian author Leo Tolstoy began his 1878 novel, Anna Karenina, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Even for people with the same kinds of difficulties, not all cases are alike. One with Sarat was suffering not only a skin disease, but also moral guilt and social isolation. But that too did not make all sufferers the same. Each Mitsora was unique in their personality, experience, type of wound. For this reason, diagnosis needed to be made by the priest with their experience and expertise. Leprosy came with an ultra-specific kind of shame because it was on a person's very skin for everyone to see. And as Tolstoy shares, other dysfunctions can be covered up with a facade of perfection. In social justice work, we often make the mistake of lumping all who need advocacy together. But the needs of exploited workers, people with disabilities, the Black community, and so on, all have very different needs. And justice work needs to address all the different sources of oppression. So too, on the level of caring for individuals, we must differentiate the needs of someone with Parkinson's and someone with cancer, someone experiencing homelessness, and someone who's incarcerated, someone going through a divorce, and someone mourning the loss of a parent. We need to learn to witness and respond to the uniqueness of suffering. Rabbi Arthur Green teaches that in our time, we all serve in the role of priest, in examining the wounds of others. Dealing with a person in pain requires two sorts of perception, specific and global. Look at the wound itself. Try to see how deep it is. Is it transformative in the person's life? Is it turning his his or her hair white, literally or metaphorically? Does it go deep? Can you be of help in lessening the depth of its effect? This question is one for the counselor, lover, or friend, as it is for the oncologist. Can I help to keep it from spreading? We know that hurt people will frequently, even against their wishes, 
go on to hurt others, especially if they're not seen or understood. This makes it all the more important to break the cycle by helping them get back to being a positive force for those around them. Also, understanding another's hurt has to begin with becoming a master of our own. If someone hasn't gone deep into themselves, they won't know how to go deep with someone else. We can look to how, in the case of our Parsha, a person with a certain type of skin ailment goes into isolation for seven days to observe the nature of their own woundedness. In the rabbinic tradition, leprosy was seen as the result of sins such as gossiping. But in our complicated lives, we know that the pain we carry can be the result of all kinds of tangled traumas, offenses, and circumstances. And yet the Torah demonstrates here a purification process, a way to bring people back to normalcy. As Rabbi Nachman taught, Teshuvah is higher than Torah. As such, there's no despair in the world, for if one merits his sins will be made into something completely different. Once we do that inner work, the challenge then is to not assume in any way that someone else's wound is like ours or experienced like ours. Instead, we must merely recall the depth of understanding of our own pain and seek to go just as deep with the other. For all who pursue justice, be it as an organizer, clergy person, educator, activist, or anyone trying to help, it's easy to think that what matters is what we put into the world. We cannot forget that it's imperative for us to also focus on what we take in from the world, what we learn from listening, gathering information, and bearing witness. Responding to suffering first requires understanding what is needed. In our own work, we've often found that it's over meals that many open up about their deeper needs. Some need a space where they can be more fully seen and heard. After handing a coffee and sandwich off our humanitarian bus to an unsheltered person, we can then hear others open up about some or other needs they also have. In an era when we don't deal with the biblical kind of leprosy, we still have the challenge of carrying the world's brokenness. In our time, we're all the patients who must at times isolate, and we're all the priests who must do the work of serving others. Friends, this is a double Parsha this week in Sefer Vayikra, so now we're going to discuss Parshat Metzora on cleansing the house. When we think of ritual purity in the book of Leviticus, we normally think of events that affect the body, such as the skin condition of Tzarat we just discussed. But in a more peculiar part of the Parsha, God says that when the Israelites enter the Promised Land, they might find that their very houses have been supernaturally plagued. When this happens, it says in Leviticus chapter 14 that the priest shall order the house cleared before the priest enters to examine the plague, so that nothing in the house may become impure. After that, the priest shall enter to examine the house. If, when he examines the plague, the plague in the walls of the house is found to consist of greenish or reddish streaks that appear to go deep into the wall, the priest shall come out of the house to the entrance of the house and close up the house for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return. If he sees that the plague has spread on the walls of the house, the priest shall order the stones with the plague in them to be pulled out and cast outside the city into an impure place. 
The house shall be scraped inside all around, and the coating that is scraped off shall be dumped outside the city in an impure place. They shall take other stones and replace those stones with them, and take other coating and plaster the house. This is an exceedingly strange thing to include in the Torah, especially considering that the houses inhabited by the Canaanites are long gone. What is the lesson for later generations? The Rambam at the conclusion of his codification of the laws of Tzarat says that the affliction of the house is actually an indicator of the mercy of God. He writes, It is a sign and wonder prevalent among the Jewish people to warn them against Lashon Hara, undesirable speech. When a person speaks Lashon Hara, the walls of their house change color. If they repent, the house will be purified. If, however, they persist in their wickedness, until the house is destroyed, the leather implements in his house upon which he sits and lies change color. If he repents, they will be purified. If he persists in his wickedness until they are burnt, the clothes he wears change color. If he repents, they will be purified. If he persists in his wickedness until they are burnt, his skin undergoes changes and he develops sarat. This causes him to be isolated and for it to be made known that he must remain alone so that he will not be involved in the talk of the wicked, which is folly and Lashon Hara. A person will contract Sarat on their home or clothes before the skin as a merciful warning so someone can change their ways. If we're given this kind of warning, though, why is it described only later in the Torah after much about Sarat is already discussed? Rabbeinu Bahaya says the style of the Torah is to give punishments in a descending sequence rather than an approach that shows punishments increasing. A person should read of the seriousness of an offense, such as evil speech, before understanding that God will give us a chance to change our ways. But in the Torah, God seems to have inflicted sarat on the homes with no cause. Why would God plague the houses that the Israelites are to inhabit? Rashi finds an answer in the Midrash Sifra, which says that when the Canaanites heard of the Israelites' approach, they hid treasures on the walls of their houses. Then the Israelites, needing to dissect their walls, would find the treasures. The purification, the tradition argues, is more than a health protocol. It's a way of discovering a deeper treasure. Of course, we encounter none of these magical seeming occurrences today neither the plagued walls nor the treasures inside. So what can we learn from these teachings? To me, this parsha cautions us against the sin of being selfish. Especially in our current culture, we might think of our homes as belonging entirely to us, that we don't need to be using our space to give back. Learning about the biblical homes that have been afflicted, though, we see that the owners were required to take all their belongings out of the house for the public to see what they actually own. We can imagine what such exposure and embarrassment must have felt like, and we can know that space is never truly ours. It is shared with God, and it's shared with the community. It's a pedagogical moment for us all to remember that our property is ultimately God's. Further, we know that we can not only act with toxicity, but also contract it from the environment around us. If we're if we're not careful, we can perpetuate a toxic culture, even if our walls aren't inf infected physically, as if one has mold or bed bugs, they can be infected spiritually, 
As such, we need to learn to detect which environments and cultures are plagued with toxicity. There's a growing culture of awareness of one's space and what one brings when one brings one's joy and where being aware of one's home is certainly a spiritually vital thing to do. But it's not only in our living spaces. We need to live in shared spaces that accommodate different aesthetics and beyond. We also need to know when there are afflictions that are not merely stylistic, unhealthy environments we need to cleanse. I believe a deeply systemic institutional disregard for dignity is one of those things. Jobs are always hard, and people will always rub each other a little bit the wrong way. Work demands rarely feel good, but that's different than a pervasive meanness built deep into a culture. Such a phenomenon can be found in families too, of course. We need to see mistreatment in order to improve our families and all those around us. Additionally, one of the things we are struggling with in America today is afflictions in the walls, a country sown by division and hate and mistruths. It seems that, in God's mercy, we're still in a warning stage since we have not yet needed to empty out, as refugees often need to do from other countries. However, we learn from the Torah that toxicity in our home is something that must be carefully examined and it must be removed. Shabbat Shalom.